0: and have a seat. Welcome and good morning. As we transition from worshiping through music to worshiping through the preaching of God's word, I just want to invite you uh, to read our passage with me today. It's Jonah chapter two. So we'll be in the book of Jonah chapter two, and you can follow along in your copy of God's word, or you can follow along on the screens right behind me. It says this, Jonah chapter two. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for your character. God, I thank you that you are the same yesterday, today and tomorrow. That there's great comfort in your immutability. God, that we don't have to wonder if you'll do what you say you do or be who you say you are because you're faithful and you're unchanging. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be with Pastor Ryan, that you would use him as an instrument, that through his words today, we would hear from you. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would be with all of us, uh, that we would have ears to hear, eyes to see exactly what you would have for us in this message today. In your
1: name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you, Stephen. Well, good morning. For those of you I do not know, my name is Ryan, and I have the honor of serving as the discipleship pastor here at Northway. And I just want to welcome you, you who are here in the room with us, you who are in our overflow room, and joining us on Facebook Live as well. We are excited to worship alongside you this morning. And this morning, we are continuing looking at the book of Jonah. Last week we looked at Jonah chapter 1, and then this week we're looking at Jonah chapter 2, what Pastor Stephen just read for us. And so if you missed last week, let me catch you up to where we are in Jonah chapter 2. We see the beginning of Jonah where God comes to Jonah, who's a prophet of God, a messenger of God, and commands him, says, hey, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it. But it says Jonah gets up and he goes in the complete opposite direction. He goes away from the presence of the Lord. It's a deliberate running from God. He gets on a ship going to Tarshish, but God pursued after Jonah. He chased after Jonah with great mercy, and he threw a storm onto the ship that he was on. And the storm was so severe that it had all the professional sailors on that ship skittish. They were terrified of this magnificent, raging storm. It was so big that they thought that it had to be some deity, some other power that was responsible for this storm. So they start calling out to all their false gods because they were pagan worshipers. Nothing worked for them, so they start throwing cargo over, trying to lighten the the load of the ship. Nothing worked for them. All the while, the prophet of God, this man of God, Jonah, was sleeping. He was sleeping through the storm. He was sleeping the sleep of sorrow, trying to escape his reality. And all throughout Jonah, that's pretty consistent where you would expect him to act in one way, but he acts in a different way. It's really filled with a bunch of irony that paints Jonah in not good light. And so they go to Jonah and say, hey, you call out to your God. Maybe he can help us. But Jonah's silent. He doesn't do anything. And eventually they cast lots and figure out that it is indeed Jonah who is responsible for all of this. And so they pepper him with questions and eventually say, okay, what do we need to do to get this storm to stop? And he tells them, he says, hey, if you want this to stop, throw me overboard. Cast me into the sea and the sea will stop raging for you. The sailors didn't see this as a viable option, so they began paddling themselves, trying to fix it themselves, and nothing worked. And then seeing that they were at the end of their own efforts, they finally turned to the one true God this time, and they called out to him. And they threw Jonah into the waves as he had requested, and when he hit the water, the storm ceased. The waters were calm. And when these pagan sailors saw the mercy of God on display, they worshiped the one true God. Jonah We think he's helpless and hopeless, that he's facing certain death, but we're told that God appointed a fish, a big fish, to come and to swallow up Jonah and to rescue him from dying. And that's where we pick up in Jonah chapter 2. Now there's a lot of controversy surrounding the fish. A lot of debate. A lot of people have some very passionate opinions. Like it's a whale. No, it's not a whale. It's a fish. It says fish, and they're they're really passionate about the the fish. But seriously, there's some people that will point to this part in Jonah. Some skeptical people and say, "See, this is how you know the story of Jonah is untrue. That it's not real, because it is not humanly possible." for a man to be swallowed by a fish and then to stay alive in that fish. And you want to respond and say, you're right. It's not humanly possible. That's why it's a miracle. Because what our whole faith hinges on is that the miracle of all miracles happened, that the God of the universe became a man, died on the cross, and then came back to life. And so if this God has that kind of power, I have no trouble believing that this same creator God could create a fish that was big enough to swallow a man and then to keep him alive in that fish. I'm just not too hung up about it. That's the kind of God we worship. But the author of Hebrews, he doesn't really emphasize the fish all that much. He doesn't seem to care too much about it. All we're told is that it's a big fish and the fish does exactly what God tells him to do. The fish obeys. Unlike his prophet, by the way. But in the fish, it says, Jonah says a prayer. From the belly of the fish, he prayed. And this is the first time we see Jonah address God. This whole time, he has yet to call out to his God. But finally, we're like, okay, maybe he's getting something right here. And he prays. And his prayer uh, unpacks the events that led to him being swallowed by the fish starts to describe what happened. He says in verse three that you cast me into the deep, which is interesting because we know that it's the pagan sailors that threw him into the waters. But what this shows is what Jonah understands to be true is that it's the sovereign God who's over all of that, that these things are taking place. That God's sovereign hand is behind everything. So they cast him into the deep and, and I don't know how you picture this scene, But I'll say, I think, again, our singing vegetable friends have led us astray here. I don't mean to keep hating on VeggieTales, but I will say in my studious preparation for this sermon, I watched the clip from VeggieTales where Jonah gets thrown into the sea, and you see this cucumber who's got a lifesaver around him get tossed into the sea, and he just kind of floats there for a few moments. It's kind of a calm scene, and then a big fish comes and eats him, and that's it. And that's just not how Jonah describes it. That's not the scene that Jonah paints here in his prayer. He gets thrown into the sea, into the sea. which again, he had asked for it. He's like, yeah, I'm good. I want this. But then when he hit the water, there came a time when all of a sudden he wasn't okay with it. And he began to panic. He starts freaking out, treading water, trying to stay afloat. As he's wearing down, he he keeps going under. It says, the waves keep crashing over me. And as his strength begins to fade, he begins to sink. He can't stay afloat anymore. Into the depths of the ocean, darkness begins to surround him. He talks about seaweed hitting him in the face. He mentions going to the pit. The pit, a lot of times in, in the Old Testament, gives symbolism of death. It talks about Sheol, which is the place of the dead, talks about the bars closing in around him, there at the bottom, being closed in by death itself, that he's fainting away, running out of breath. He's hopeless. It says, "Yet he remembers the Lord." And when he remembered the Lord, it said, the Lord heard his prayer, and the Lord sends a fish, and the fish swallows him and comes to J- Jonah's rescue. And that's where this prayer comes from. But there's some difficulty surrounding the heart of this prayer. There's some challenges and to understand what is the intention of Jonah with this prayer. There's a few different varying views of what's going on. And so what I want to do is I want to just overview them quickly for us in hopes that it can invite you into the tension so that you can wrestle with what's going on in Jonah But I'm going to give us some things that are very clear as well, that we can land on some clarity. So the first kind of view is that this prayer of Jonah is one of complete and total repentance. That this is Jonah with a repentant heart calling out to the Lord and the Lord coming to his rescue. And people who kind of look at that and see this, they'll point out to elements specifically like uh, the word holy temple in verses 4 and 7. They'll point to this kind of language because the holy temple for the people of Israel is where God's presence was. They understood God to be everywhere at all times, but they specifically knew that God promised in a special way his presence would dwell in the temple. And in 1 Kings 8, when Solomon is dedicating the temple and praying to God, what he asks God is, hey, when your people turn away from you and they go off in their own sin, if they will return to you and turn towards this temple and pray towards your holy temple, asking for forgiveness, Lord, please forgive them. And so with that kind of background, people will point to the language of Jonah using the, the words holy temple and say, this potentially is him having a remorseful heart. One where he's praying and pleading with God, anticipating God's forgiveness. They'll also point to verse eight where in verse eight it talks about those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. The idea being saying, I'm not going to cling to these vain idols like other people. I'm clinging to you. And I love the actual wording of vain idols. There's two words, one being empty and the other being breath or mitts. And so the scene is incredible as Jonah is very literally running out of breath. His mind says, and his heart says, I'm not going to chase something that's not going to bring me true breath. I'm clinging to you, the one who can give me breath. And so, potentially, maybe this is a prayer of genuine repentance. Others are not convinced, though. Others will point to this prayer and say, maybe it's more of a progressive repentance, that it's the seeds of repentance that begin to blossom and bloom in Jonah. And people like Paul David Tripp uh, will point to that first line, and this is what he says. He says, the word distress is a euphemistic and a laughable way to talk about sin. He says, Jonah doesn't seem to be taking any kind of responsibility for what's happening in his life here. It's like a politician's apology. I'm sorry these things happened to you. Mistakes were made. There's no responsibility here. Jonah's saying, hey, I've got bad things happening to me, and you're like, yeah. You ran. Like, you ran from the Lord. These mistakes aren't just something that just happened. You ran from the Lord. This is because of your own sin here. And so it seems to not have this kind of broken and contrite heart that the Psalms talk about. But what they would argue is by the end of it, maybe we see Jonah's heart repenting. That by the end of it, his heart turns back towards the Lord as he says, I remembered the Lord. But there are still others who would look at this prayer and and say, I don't know that there's any repentance at all. They question the authenticity of Jonah's intentions here. And one reason being is they'll point to the rest of the story of Jonah and say, this doesn't seem to be consistent with someone who has a truly repentant heart. That the last two chapters, you see him kind of partially obey, but not really. You see him with a hard heart, calloused heart. You see him not being someone who distributes mercy. And you say, I just don't know that it's from a repentant heart. Now, some will say, you know, this is just a truly repentant man who's just struggling. Because that's the story of every follower of Jesus, right? We turn from our sins, but then we still struggle. And that this is just a struggling Jonah. But... With the whole consistency of all of the story of Jonah, he's not painted as a hero, and so this would kind of be an outlier here. They'll also point to language in Jonah and again say that it's conspicuously absent of any language of confession of sin or repentance of sin. In fact, it's very self-centered for most of it. Over 23 times he used I, me language in the prayer, so it's a pretty self-centered prayer. David Platt will even point out to where the language says Jonah remembered God and say that this seems a little weird with the rest of Scripture. Because usually what you see in Scripture is that when people are in distress and God brings salvation or works for his people, it usually says God remembered them. God remembered Abraham. God remembered Noah. God remembered Israel. God remembered Hannah. But here you see Jonah saying, I remembered you. And potentially this is showing a pious perspective, this one where he's filled with self-righteousness, where he's the one enacting all the things that he needs. It's not a place of neediness. Platt will even point to verses 8 and 9 where he says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope for steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. And say... It almost sounds like Jonah saying, you know, they're not going to get it, they're not going to get it right, but, you know, I've got it right, that I've done the right thing, I'm, I've got your steadfast love, and it's a kind of pious way of looking at it. So maybe, maybe this isn't a genuine prayer of repentance. So what's the answer? Which one is, is the heart of Jonah. I've got to be honest with you, as I studied this, I really struggled with this. I struggled with the ambiguity here. I love things that are black and white. I love clarity. I tell people all the time, I thrive under clear instruction. You just tell me what you want me to do, and I will do it. I struggle with the gray. It was hard for me listening to pastor after pastor after pastor that I really respect, that are way smarter than me, all land in slightly different places, But I'll tell you, I think the ambiguity is good here because what it does is it invites us into the story to wrestle with what's happening so that we can see that we are all Jonah, that every single one of us can look at the life of Jonah and the story of Jonah and the prayer of Jonah and say, yeah, that's me. You can be far, far, far from the Lord and you read Jonah and you're like, yep, that's me. You can have a pious and self-righteous view of yourself, and you might not actually see it, but you can read the story of Jonah and say, yeah, that's me. You can be someone who follows the Lord and look at a struggling Jonah and say, yeah, that's me. We are all Jonah, no matter who you are. And so while there's some ambiguity on what his heart's intent is, there's an abundance of clarity in this that we are all Jonah, and Jonah is in desperate need of mercy. It's abundantly clear Jonah is a man in need of mercy. The other consistent and clear piece in this, the other thing that there's, is not up for debate, is the character of God that is on di- display in Jonah. And that's where I want to spend the remainder of our time this morning is looking at the character of God that is on display in this prayer and in Jonah and all of Scripture. Specifically, I want us to look at verse 8 again, where it says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope for steadfast love. Those last two words, steadfast love, are actually one word in the Hebrew. It's the Hebrew word hesed said. And the reason why I tell you the word itself is because there's no one-to-one English equivalent for this word. That in different translations in different places, it's translated as steadfast love, loving kindness, grace, mercy, love, goodness. And the reason being is because it's all of these things. This word is an unbelievably powerful word, and it is a word that is fundamental to the character of God. We actually see this in over 240 Old Testament verses. And the reason why I bring this out is because I believe if we can truly grasp and understand and come to know God has said that it is life changing for us. And so this morning, I want us to look at three characteristics of God's has said that are true in Jonah. And I was a good Southern Baptist preacher this morning. There's three points. They all start with the same letter. So you're welcome for that. It doesn't usually work out like that for me. But three characteristics of God's has said in Jonah. Number one is God has, God's has said is saving, it's saving. Without this characteristic of God, we would be hopeless, because we're all Jonah. We all have run from God. Jonah uses the language in verse 4 that he's been driven away from the presence of God, and that's the same language used in Genesis 3 after the fall of man when God drove mankind from Eden, from his presence, and that's the condition of all of us. We've all been separated from the author of life itself and to be separated by the author of life is to be surely dead. Scripture says we by nature are enemies of God. We're dead in sin like Jonah, sinking down to the depths towards certain death, to the pit, to Sheol, to have death's bars close over us. That is my story and that is your story, but for the loving kindness of God but for the mercy and love of God. Just as he rescued Jonah from certain death, we have hope for salvation through faith in Jesus. Because what Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 12, when the Pharisees ask for a sign, he says, the only sign I'm giving you is the sign of Jonah. That as Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, the son of man, Jesus, We'll spend three days, three nights in the heart of the earth. The greater Jonah is here. That is good news for us. That just as Jonah was facing certain death and then was swallowed up by fish and stayed there in his belly, but then came out and walked away alive, Jesus lived the perfect life that we could not live faced death, died on the cross, was there in the belly of the tomb for three days. And then on the third day, he came out alive. And through that hope, we have salvation. Through Jesus's sacrificial death and resurrection, we have salvation. That's how Jonah is so uh, boldly able to c- proclaim in verse nine, salvation belongs to the Lord. That's the heartbeat of of this book. That's the heartbeat of all of scripture. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That if we turn from sin and trust in Jesus, we find salvation and we become objects of God's chesed, his steadfast love, his loving kindness, his mercy, his grace. You might have come in here this morning and you are so far from the Lord. You've been running your entire life you need to understand that God's merciful, saving love is available for you. You might be sinking down to the depths, and you might go far, 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 but you need to understand you are not too far for the mercy of God to reach you and to save you. Turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus. Be embraced by his said. Others of you in here, you if you were honest, don't think you need the mercy of God. Don't be deceived. We all are in desperate need of the mercy of God. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. For many of you, you're followers of Jesus in here this morning, and you've said, yeah, been there, done that. I have called out to him for salvation. I've experienced his salvation. But you need to understand you need his said, his mercy, his love daily. You never outgrow the need for the gospel. Yes, it was one and done. When you turned and trusted Jesus, your sins were forgiven on the moment. You went from death to life, and no one can change that. That is secure. You were saved from the power or from the penalty of sin. But daily, you need the mercy of God to help you fight the power of sin and to free you from the sin that so easily entangles. Make no mistake, followers of Jesus, we daily need the mercy and love and the kindness of God. We need it, and his love is merciful, it's saving. Secondly, God's said is steadfast. It's steadfast. That's how the ESV translated, "is steadfast love. It's sure, it's true. And I know so many of us feel just the instability that this life brings that even things that we think should be sure end up falling through. And maybe someone in here this morning, you really feel that. You've lost someone too early. You've been wounded by the words of a friend that you thought was faithful. You've had that parent disappoint you and not show up. You've been passed over for the promotion. Sure things have fallen through and you just feel like there's so much stability, instability in your life. You need to understand that God has said his love is steadfast. It is sure. It is not contingent on anything else other than the immutable, unchanging character of God. And he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Nothing changes who he is. His love was not dependent on Jonah. It wasn't dependent on his ability to obey. When Jonah ran and disobeyed against God, God remained the same. He was consistent. Jonah's all over the place. We see him running, we see him depressed, we see him angry, we see him just so unstable, yet God remains stable and consistent. Why? because it has nothing to do with Him and everything to do with His God. I love the way Ben Stewart says it. He says, God doesn't chase us because there's something beautiful in us. He chases us because there's something beautiful in Him. His love is not motivated by nor contingent upon your loveliness. And man, that is good news for us. That through Jesus, enemies are called friends. Through Jesus, the unlovable are called beloved. God's love is steadfast and sure. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture is 2 Timothy 2.13, where he says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That is who God is. And so here's what that means for you, follower, follower of Jesus. When you are a follower of Jesus and you are getting everything right, you're walking in perfect obedience, you have the full love of God in that moment. You cannot be more loved than you are in that moment. And when you are getting everything wrong, when you are walking in disobedience and you are failing miserably, you have the fullness of the love of God in that moment. You cannot possibly be more loved than you are in that moment because God's love is steadfast it's sure it does not change with the seasons he is eternal and you quite frankly are not powerful enough to change him he's consistent and so when we sin as followers of Jesus it should drive us to our father not away from him We go to him knowing that our sins were paid for on the cross of Christ, that when Jesus died on the cross, he knew the depths of your heart, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and he still chose you. He said, you are mine. And so when we sin, we run towards him, knowing we've been forgiven, and then in light of that forgiveness, we pursue righteousness and obedience. Rest in the steadfast, unchanging love of God finally god's has said is specific it's specific it is tailored for what we need when we need it how we need it when i think of the word tailored i think of a suit and when i think of a tailored suit i think like probably many of you guys do of my wedding day and on my wedding day we bought a suit and had the suit tailored to me it was great and then 6 months later i was in another wedding and thankfully, the groom decided to use the same suits that I, I had for my wedding, and so I was awesome. I was like, got to save some money. He ended up, thankfully, purchasing some extra suits as well, um, but I was like, I'm going to wear the tailored one because you know it's fit to me, it's going to be great. And we were getting ready that morning, and as we were getting ready, I pulled on the pants and they just, they didn't buckle for some reason, this tailored suit. All of a sudden, it didn't fit me. The jacket was a little tight, and I didn't understand why. It's because that suit was tailored for wedding day, Ryan, not stuff your face with food for six months, Ryan. I needed a different suit for that moment. Thankfully, we had extras. It was all good. God's love is tailored. It's specific. God, in his wisdom, gives his beloved exactly what they need, when they need it, how they need it. He uses the right tool at the right time. He's not bringing a chainsaw to surgery, and he's not bringing a scalpel to cut down a tree. And we see this with Jonah. With Jonah, he's chased after him with a storm, a fish. Later we'll see him use a plant, a worm, and scorching wind—all acts of mercy in aims of drawing Jonah to himself. God is, God's love is specific for us. It's like the discipline of a loving father. Even the most unpleasant circumstances are aimed and used for our good. Was the fish pleasant for Jonah? Probably not. It was smelly. It was dark. It probably hurt. It was, gr- it was terrible. But it was still an instrument of God's mercy. I love the way John Piper says it. He says, he never brings us into affliction merely for the sake of punishment. His purposes always include redemption. Adversity is redemptive, not merely punitive. All, he's not just some kid on an anthill with a magnifying glass just trying to smite people for fun. God is working all things for his, for his glory and for the good of his people. So some of you in here this morning, you are so stressed and so anxious about so many things. Your head is constantly spinning about the near future, the far future. You're worried about your marriage or about getting married. You're worried about your kids or about having kids. You're worried about your career, your job. You are stressed and anxious and worried about so many things, and it's probably so hard for you to sleep at night. Some of you in here are just disappointed and frustrated and angry and embittered because life is not going how you think it should go or how you expected it to go. Hear me say this. Your God is too good and too big for you to be anxious and troubled about so many things. God's love is specific. The promise of Romans 8.28 is so comforting. Where He says he's working all things Everything, every moment, every circumstance, all things for your good. He's drawing you to himself. He's conforming you into the image of Jesus, and it's all for your good. And so when you find yourself just drowning and distressed and stressed out, and and maybe it's even because of your own disobedience like Jonah, you need to trust and know and remember that God's love is still at work. He has not forgotten or abandoned you. He is drawing you to himself because you are his and he is yours. Trust in that love. Rest in that love. My hope and my prayer for all of us this morning is that we would all see that we are Jonah. We are in desperate need of the mercy of God. And what I also hope and pray is that you will see God's said that it's merciful and saving, it's sure and steadfast, it's intimate and specific. When you are loved by this kind of love and you come to know this kind of love, it changes everything. So my prayer, my prayer for you is that you would know the love of your God. I want to close by speaking over you and praying over you Ephesians 3, verse 17, uh, which is a prayer of Paul, and this is my prayer for you. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length in the height, in the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's my prayer for each of you, that you would grasp this love and that you would sleep like a baby when you lay your head down at night.